Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to your book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm your host, Daisy Buchanan. If you've been listening to the podcast for a little while, you might think, you know what, I'd love to share my shelves. I've got some strong book chat. I have great news for you. We've partnered with bookshop.org and if you pre-order my brand new novel, Limelight, in hardback from bookshop.org, you'll automatically be entered into a prize draw where you could win a chance to be a guest on this podcast and share your excellent literary taste with your fellow listeners. If this isn't the prize for you, we'll arrange an alternative. Limelight is out on the 1st of June. It's a story about sisterhood, sexuality and self-esteem. It's about Frankie, how she craves and fears attention and what happens when she is unexpectedly forced into the spotlight. You can also get my novels Careering and Insatiable from bookshop.org. Careering is out in paperback on the 9th of March. Now to our guest. It's my honour to start this series with Tessa Hadley. She's one of my favourite authors and I think one of the all-time great British writers. We talked about a shared love affair with interiors in books and domestic details, about the childhood books that become impossible to track down and how we might read older stories in an historically sensitive way. Tessa is very wise and very generous. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I'd like to start by asking about a book or books I think you'd like because um, I was delighted to see the books you mentioned um, in the acknowledgements of free love um, mm. and sort of what inspired you about that time period and I suppose how you researched the book. So I'd love to hear more about those books because you mm. made me want to. Uh, read so them. that was Margaret Drabble and Nell Dunn. And, uh, and uh, is there's another book, isn't there? There's the Jonathan Green book. Well, that's a marvel. Um, that which I didn't know before I was writing Free Love and a friend, John Williams, put me onto it and said, oh, you must read this. And it was like, oh, here is the gift you need in order to write this novel. And I, I almost can't believe I had embarked on writing Free Love without it, because it's a sort of compendium put together in the 80s of people who were there in the 60s about what they did, what they said, what they thought, how they related to one another. And it was just so a blessing. And I was thinking, what what is it that it gave me? It gave me stuff so people lived like this and they 
those sort of people slept together and they knew these people. And it gave me idiom because I think that's that when you're writing about a past period is is what can sound so inauthentic or, or right. And it gave me the phrases that people used in their heads first and then talking to the interviewer about the 1960s and that that was marvelous for me and and I guess that's to to expand that into what you're interested in in this interview about reading to me that's one of the treasures of all reading what did the 1860s sound like to itself how did it think about itself what did the 1900s in what phrases in what literary you know what uh, word forms did it imagine its world? And I sort of feel that's such a deep kind of history. And yet at the same time, it's so deliciously easy to assimilate compared to, you know, more sort of academic forms of history. But if one doesn't know that, if you don't know what the mindset and the mind world was, well, you're really, you're really not getting the past. So I love to come at the past through idiom. And I mean, I think that's what I'm very interested in how what people's days were like and what yeah. you know the experience of them sort of opening a front door and uh, we had uh, Susie Dent on the podcast just mm. before Christmas and she's very very interested in slang and mm. slang is something that is to to move forward and who uses it and who mm. needs to use yeah. words that are understood quickly and not by the sort of high court judges it's interesting that it's always teenagers are hardest to write. Children seem in a funny way, almost eternal. It's easy to write children from different decades. But teenagers, of course, deliberately, in order to evade us capturing them, change their slang about every two years, don't they? So suddenly one, you know, one minute wicked is cool and hip and your mum is just learning that you actually mean it's good. And then, oh, no, mum, don't, it's so embarrassing. Nobody's saying that anymore. So that's, yeah, they're the hardest to keep up with in terms of slang. And... I have such a vivid memory of it would be in the, so I'm um, in my late 30s, I'm 37. So this is sort of the early 90s, I think. And was an enormous um, apple on an apple tree in our garden and my friend Jessica who we were about seven or eight at the time said it was a wicked apple and my mother thought it was a fabulous kind of fairy tale <laughs> phrase and she grabbed it with alacrity and that was when we knew that wicked was over but of yeah. course it's come <laughs> exactly back right. yes. <laughs> it was yes. ironic and now we just oh Daisy has it come back I'm not even sure I know that so it's come back in a sort of ironic retro way now that I'm saying that, I'm not sure of myself. Thirty-seven, <laughs> you yes, may not have I'm, your. I'm too old <laughs> to know. <laughs> I would love to hear about any novels that have children or teenagers in them that you mm. sort of love and respond mm. to and find mm. generally interesting. I mean, hundreds probably. I do think there's something about novels and stories beautifully corresponds to what realist writing does because children just have their eyes open and if you like their rule book shut so they 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 get life very freshly don't they so I mean Elizabeth Bowen who probably will crop over over and over because she's sort of my my great love my intimate writer love um she's marvelous with children her, there's her whole novel House in Paris, one of my absolute favourites, surely one of the best English, Anglo-Irish 20th century novels. 
that's that's two children who meet for one day in a house in Paris and a, a strange little boy and a slightly more ordinary little girl but I love it that she gives the strange little boy and the apparently ordinary little girl equal imaginative weight and sympathy in the book and they they pass they don't like each other but they they spend a day together in this surrounding alien to both of them he is there to do something quite extraordinary which is to meet the mother the upper class english mother who had him illegitimately and has never seen him apart from when he was born and um she is the, the the little girl Henrietta is there on a much more ordinary mission, going to stay with a friend of her grandmother's, I think, for a holiday. But they sort of pass and manage to exchange intimacy while hostile. But just you can see the whole weirdness of the world through their clean eyes. They're taking it all in, and the, the strange family, the mother and daughter, living in this Parisian house, let alone Paris let alone everything, let alone the nefarious activities of grown-ups that result in having a little boy who's never met his mother, et cetera, et cetera. It's just, it's a beautiful, stunning book. So that's one. But I mean, Dickens also, uh, Mill on the Floss, George Eliot, Tom and Maggie. The, the high, I always think the whole of feminism is encoded there with Maggie and Tom Tom forced to go to his hated school and learn hated Latin. He hates it so much he has a little stick in the garden and he, I think he does, he carve notches in it for every day that passes towards the holidays when he can be free. And Maggie, who wants to learn Latin more than anything and is envious of Tom, who's been given the, the, the symbolic equipment to join the patriarchy, as it were, the kind of pain for everybody in that deal, but done through these tender children. Oh, I think that's so interesting because I'd never thought of this before, but I suppose the way that children in books empathise or don't, that empathy is quite an adult skill and we don't judge children for not mm. having sufficient mm. quantities of it. And so mm. to have that sort of the narrow focus that's mm. sort of in, in literature and in characters is is interesting and gives that extra bit of clarity to how they see the world. Uh, to my shame, I've never read Elizabeth Bowen, but I feel that's what I'm going to do sort of immediately after. Yeah, no, get the house in Paris. It's a great place to start, actually. You'll you'll love it, I think, yeah. Yeah, you're right, you're right. The lack of one kind of empathy, which is overt sympathy and kindness in a way, you're right, it clears the way for another kind of empathy, which is imagination, which is watching the other one and seeing them very, very clearly and purely in the predicament they're in yeah that's 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 exactly true and I think the second kind is sort of much more kinetic isn't it because it's mm. an imagination that another person can move in yeah. your head yeah yeah I was yeah. really yeah. interested to read in the Guardian interview um I think you said the interviewer was talking about judging Phyllis in free love for abandoning mm. her children and you said that I think your mother did as well mm. and I was thinking about you know that not to kind of to give too much away but sort of the mirroring of the story and how Phyllis is judged in a way when we have mothers in stories all of the the feminist themes that are being explored and all you know the way womanhood is explored mm. and how in the way that sort of you know children's literature sort of get, getting rid of the parents so the children yes. can have adventures and how flawed mothers are so much more human and more interesting yes 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 
It's funny, I one of my favorite books when I was a child, because uh, I was a huge devourer of books and I had, I, I went to a library and got them all the time from there, but I did have a few books of my own on, on a couple of shelves above my bed. And one of them was called The Children Who Lived in the Barn. And I'd assumed that that was unfindable, weird, vanished a thousand years ago piece of history. And I actually found it had been reprinted recently by, I think, Persephone Books. And I sat down in a big, was it Foils or Waterstones in Piccadilly when I was last in London and sort of almost read the whole of it in, in that eerie way when you know almost every word and yet you haven't revisited it for 50 years. And that absolutely just ludicrously removes the parents who've had an actually had an air crash and got amnesia so they're sort of in a farmhouse in Switzerland somewhere and <laughs> but what's tragic about it looking at it now is that immediately the older boy is he John can't remember um sort of says uh Susan you you make some you make the dinner for the younger ones while I go out and forage for so and so and they take on exactly the parental roles that their vanished parents had but it's, it's still a it, it was yeah, it was joyous to me when I was little. How did it feel to find that book again? Because I think sometimes these really vivid sort of visceral books of our past, we almost feel like we dreamed them. And the and that excitement and joy that, oh, it's real and this happened, but knowing to come back to an adult what you felt so intensely as a child, I think there are... It's, it's very risky, isn't it? And I, I have to say, this book felt very thin. I mean, that's the trouble with adult reading, but of course the the brilliance of adult reading is that you you can you can suddenly see through what seemed impermeable and you see the structures of it and you see and I, I don't even mean in literary form I actually mean sort of sociologically you can see what's going on and it was fascinating looking at the class in the book and the local people in relation to these sort of posh children I mean I hadn't I was totally unaware of that or just took that in at the time as natural the way one does. I don't mean because I belong to that posh class, but I mean, you just you just accept the rules of what you read. It's such a very different experience, I think, childhood reading. Uh, the child puts in almost 90%, which is why quite thin books like Enid Blyton books that have, have no dimension to them. But if they have the story right, the child just puts everything into it and the story becomes rich and full and nourishing so one shouldn't worry too much about what children read in a way they'll they'll fill it out with themselves but but at the same time there are children's books that have both and they're they're the ones that form the bridge then into adult reading which is a whole which is completely different in a way conceptually because one's critical mind is at work woven in with, woven in with that yielding, submissive imagination, which is just immersed. But there probably aren't that many books which can do that trick, because most of the time one's thinking, oh, no, I can see what they're doing. Oh, that's weak. You know, that's, this is the horrid reader in me, um, you know. And, but, and, then, and, then, and then a book does it, and it, it washes you over imaginatively into being there, into fascination and, and at the same time your critical mind is thinking how beautiful how marvelous look at that how did they do that so it's, you know that those are the the great reading experiences but it's a very different thing to childhood reading do you think that as a writer when you do read those magical books that move you and sort of seduce on every level and get it absolutely right that you 
appreciate them so much more mm. and the, the skill and the talent that that makes up for being a bit more critical and mm. having a heart less soon made glad to to paraphrase but I, but I sort of love being critical I can't wish to unpick that it, it seems to add more to the books I do love it doesn't spoil them and I don't wish to succumb to the the ones that can't do that thing so so yes, uh, but whether that's whether and I think you were asking, being a writer does it make that difference? But I think good, I think good critical readers are exactly the same. You don't need to be a writer to have all that at work. That's that's just in your alert, attending mind. I don't think you need to be a writer at all, actually. You know, to to do that, no. To read critically, to read with yes. demandingly and exactingly. I mean, in a way, the great books you read teach you to ask for that level of satisfaction, don't they? I can't imagine horrors, a world in which I hadn't read Henry James and George Eliot and Elizabeth Bowen and Colin Tobin. But all of those people have taught me to think, it can be that good. It can be that good. I'd love to go back a little bit because you talked about being a, a passionate and dedicated reader um, as a child and always being a reader. And if you've got any very early memories of the first books that you were mm. excited about or how books were introduced to you and when that became such an important part of your life. It's a very classic, almost... It's, almost a cliche I mean I just was that little shy odd girl who sort of found books easier than life in a way was braver and more courageous in books than in life although you know I I, I wasn't an unhappy child I had a happy childhood until I went to a horrid grammar school aged 11 and that was like being sent to prison but I got out of there eventually um the, so books always can't can I rem I can remember learning to read. I can remember seeing the letter A and then seeing the letter A written differently as it is in printed books and the two coalescing and me sort of knowing what they encoded. So I can actually remember that. And then I have this memory, which I have talked about once or twice, of a book that seemed formative, which I cannot... I've no idea what it is. I've sort of hunted for it online to, by clues I can't get it it was about a family called the Smalls and it was Mr and Mrs Small and the Small Smalls and maybe that fated me forever to write domestic novels about sort of ordinary people uh, I love and it was in black and white and blue the illustrations stylish 1960s but I've no idea what it was but I think from the beginning I loved realism I loved books about people living now and having their adventures now and it actually I wasn't a great fan of fairy tales I did I had a book of Grimm's which terrified me it was one of like the Happy Prince by Oscar Wilde too terrible to open they sat on my shelf having been read once and they sort of seemed to have horrors inside them frightening I did I did read them more than once but it was with trepidation so those fairy tale things were either boring to me or terrifying to me and it was the textures of everyday life that I loved although that could be everyday life in Victorian times or colonial America or ancient Egypt I, you know I had books set in all of these but they their narrative was of you know 
so-and-so woke up in the morning and was running on his way to the pyramid sort of thing that, that, that slightly hilariously thing that childhood books <laughs> do where they they transport a modern sensibility back inside the past because I've, I've never really thought about that a lot and you know thinking about the the books that you were are associated with childhood like fairy tales and Mm. And I had various sort of, you know, Greek myths made, you know, suitable and beautifully mm. illustrated and probably mm. a bit less violent. Mm. But yeah, that sort of fantasy has never really captured my attention. And I've never really wanted mm. to read about sort of pits of fire and people flying. No, but pits of fire. Who the Family them, yes. at One End Street was the book I wanted to read over and over again because yes. of those domestic yes, yes, details yes. and that a texture in a house that you could... And I think what you were saying earlier, that even if it doesn't have to describe every single mug, mug in the cupboard, but you can see them, you can touch them all mm. in your head. Mm. I know, I'm more and more thinking how, it's sort of in defence of realism, how that is my mystery, which it sounds as if it is yours as well, Daisy. It's when Alice Munro writes about going to buy a can of tomatoes, and I feel as if I'm... It's as mysterious and powerful as if I'm in a cave in the, you know, Paleolithic and the torches are flickering and the, uh, you know, the aurochs and the horses are galloping across the cave walls and you're, you're pressing up against the edge of the mysterious. Well, I feel that with realism in modern novels, modern, you know, the last couple of hundred years. That's our mystery. It's that's where we sort of, touch what's uncanny isn't that odd the, the the more ordinary the more uncanny is what I actually feel that's very powerful for me do you know what I mean yeah I do I do I really do I feel it sometimes in um Eleanor Ferrante and there are those bits mm. where she I think does like the mm. skirts the most delicate edge of magical realism and it's the closest mm. Mm. I can sort of come to embrace that of normal people feeling very mm. strange. Yeah, she does I, do that. That's that's true. Yes, that's right. I think I can't remember which book, but it must be a book when they're sort of they are adults. But I think Lila's in a kitchen, um, and the pot sort of explodes, and it's mm. ruined. She says this is sort mm. of it feels supernatural, but she knows it isn't. And that mm. I think you know people in realism when people are aware that the real and life is is so strange that everyone's got these enormous interiors. There's an Alice Munro story in Open Secrets where a wife is stirring custard and I, I, I won't tell the whole backstory but essentially as she's stirring the custard on the stove she has a picture comes unbidden into her head of somebody she knows who forcing somebody else's hand down onto a hot flame as a punishment and she knows who a murderer is. I mean, that sounds incredibly melodramatic. It's not. It's all Alice Munro-ish. And it's in that kitchen. And that's supernatural, but it's also intensely ordinary. Mm. And she's full of those numinous moments that nonetheless have no kind of irritating... heavy underlining of mystery around them there's nothing there's nothing that says watch out here comes the transcendent (laughs) you know which would be a perfect awful wonderful title for a novel I think (laughs) (laughs) watch out here comes the transcendent thinking I was going to say of the 20th and 21st century but you know sort of Victorian further back than that are there any 
periods that you really love to read about in fiction, in novels? I'm not, I'm actually not a great reader of historical novels. I was as a teenager. I loved them, actually, which, which slightly breaks with my rule about realism, doesn't it? We had a huge craze of reading Jean Plady together, me and my friends. Um, I do happen to particularly love those mid-20th century women writers. The, there's a sort of crowd of talent, isn't there? Elizabeth Bowen, Elizabeth Taylor, my favourite, another favourite, Ruma Godden, who I think is amazing and rather underrated. I think I've only ever read a couple of her, but did she write, because she wrote adult books, didn't she? The only one I really remember with any kind of clarity is the one that everyone's read, which is The Green Gage Summer, which I remember being quite shocked by, but in a really great way. When I was a teenager, it seemed like one of the most adult children things I've ever read. Yes, it actually does have sex in it, and it's amazing, and 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 it's constructed on the page in a very sophisticated way, so you have to be sharp for the timeline, because it's sort of all told retrospectively, and yet, um, and yet it's vividly in the moment. That's a marvelous book, and there's just tons and tons more, Daisy. You, you, it's I'm all marvelous. Mention a book that you might already know, me very familiar with, you might hate, but I came across it. I think last year, possibly uh, the backlisted podcast. Um, and our friend of the podcast, Angie Miller, um, A Wreath for the Enemy by Pamela Frankow, when you were talking about timelines and that sort of a teenage book with an adult feel, Mm, I thought, I mm. think there's a chance that that might be a book that you might love if you haven't read it already. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's some lovely Jane Gardham teenage books with that grown-up feel, aren't there? The Summer After the Funeral and A Long Way to Verona. I love those two books. They, they they remind me of the Green Age summer, and and that's oh, interesting. I, look I love Jane like Gardner. I've not read those, yeah. and now I'm very oh, oh, excited. Oh, they're marvelous. They're as good as any. I mean, I love her adult books too. But yeah, I thought this is the greediest um, interview I've ever done. <laughs> Just, that's... <laughs> so so that era is inter- I I think I'm sure it comes about because I love those writers. It isn't. Be- I hope because I have any nostalgic desire to go back inside that rather constrained class-ridden moment of Britishness. I I like them all better than Virginia Woolf. I'll confess to one of my sort of absences. I'm not a Woolf fan. I I just think they all write better. I don't have anything. She's obviously an extraordinary person. Her diaries, which I haven't read consistently, just bits, are tremendous. She's as intelligent as a knife. But I feel in her novels always this burden of self-consciousness, this sort of heaviness of of doubt, which we all know know about from you know, the story of her life and her unhappiness in writing. Uh, but it's, uh, it's not the story of her life that's in, informed that, it's the sentences themselves. I, I don't I don't love it. It's too knowing somehow. She she it's also a bit unerotic, and I don't mean there's no sex in it. I mean, when I read Bowen, I feel as if almost every sentence is charged with eros, with with a sort of sensual love for life. And then, yes, when her when Bowen's people or Elizabeth Taylor's people get together, there's there's electricity there. And I don't know that Wolf knows about that because she certainly can't write it. So interesting. She's one of my gaps. I think that's fascinating. The only time there's, and I've not read 
all of her diaries or anything like that, but I remember a scrap of one where she talks about being very upset because she goes out to a tea party or something and everyone makes fun of her hat and she feels very self-conscious about it. Oh. And only then did I sort of feel any warmth. <laughs> but I, I think mm. it's so interesting about sex in a book. I was thinking mm. as well about that with um, Barbara Trepido, where, mm. you know, the sex might not be explicit, but the novels are sort of full of life and desire mm. and the fun of it. And the, yeah. The, yeah. They're, all, yeah. they're all doing it and they feel quite relaxed about it. Yeah. One feels the Bloomsbury set talked about it. I mean, I mean, they were obviously, some of them were doing it a lot, but probably not Virginia. Yes, they talked about it. Do you know, I feel, I feel in Jane Austen, do you remember that moment in Persuasion when Anne is staying with her sister Mary and the two little kids are in the room and she's sort of meeting Captain Wentworth again I think it's not the first time they meet I think it's the second or third and the children are clambering over her or one of them's sick and she's tending to him and the other one's on her back these are her nephews and their dad who's sitting in the room is reading the newspaper and just says oh Charles get down but she suddenly feels the child being lifted off her back and it's Captain Wentworth lifting him off and that is a sexier moment as the most explicit coupling John Updike ever wrote, you know, because you feel his touch and yet mm. through the child's body and you feel her, ah, it's amazing. So, so you do not need to describe bodily parts to make sexiness and sex attraction on the page. Because I think all you want, with many exceptions, um, certainly sex in a book, is someone who absolutely is confident in their movements and knows what they're doing, and that's mm. what that is. Yes, yes, absolutely. And by the way, John Updike does write sex totally brilliantly. It's just that I used him as the polar extreme. I was, for a while, I lived with my aunt and uncle for a few weeks, sort of working as their au pair or something, probably not very effectively. And I can remember reading couples and being absolutely startled and stunned by the explicitness of the sexuality in there. Whereas I think I'd, I'd looked through Ulysses and been slightly thwarted. <laughs> where is it? Like, fine, where, where is it? Is it? Yes. Um, but, what, but actually what I remember about couples was the, was the loveliness, the rich wealth of the description. It looked a bit thin when I reread it recently, but at the time it was the wealth of the conjuring of the presence i think i read couples either immediately before or immediately after reading Peyton place i was probably uh -huh. about 15 brilliant brilliant and juxtaposition how those things sort of ran together and i feel like in Peyton place there's sort of there's wealth but poverty and there's lots of, and i i think possibly um grace metallius in a very pulpy way was doing some, you know, trying to write about, you know, social realism mm. and those gaps mm. and how people mm. help. Mm. I think women, the sex, women's a force that you can move with and travel with. And that's why it's so important in the book and maybe in books sort of written, you know, in the early, mid 20th century. But then even though lots of sort of emotionally miserable things happen in couples, um, it was a, a safe luxury mm. space. Uh, yes. That sort of yeah. bit upper, upper middle class, is it set in the 60s yeah. or the 70s? 60s that sort sure. of that bit of america if, if not even the 50s but i think it's the 60s yeah that yeah. to me seems so much more exotic than even like rudyard kipling yeah. or something yeah yeah absolutely yes yes i think it did to me too yes there's that sort of non non-urban not well not you know not a city not a great metropolis mm. 
that that was Updike's terrain, wasn't it? Those small enclaves of wealthy, privileged, middle-class America, but but always coming from a different background, always that social mobility that had brought him to this sort of peak of privilege and luxury and comfort and domesticity and the comedy of that. That's what he writes about best. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. We'll be back with Tessa soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week. I've chosen Delicacy by Katie Wicks. This is a truly extraordinary memoir, and I think it's as subtle and nuanced as the title suggests. The writing is beautiful, dark, funny and sad. It's a vulnerable book, but a strong one, and a really courageous exploration of grief too. If you've struggled with the complex issues we have around food, eating and bodies, it's filled with insight. I was a bit nervous about what this book might bring up, but it left me feeling really moved and peaceful. Delicacy by Katie Wicks is published by Headline and out now. Now, back to Tessa. Did you ever read The Serial? And it's written around the same time as the Tales of the City books and Serial, mm. which I love and adore, and that's one of my very, very favourites. And it's very, mm. and it's, it's very slight, is The Serial. It's not a sort of a, a grand, world-breaking novel. And again, it was from a newspaper column that was sort of brought Mm, into a book, mm. but it's about aspiring upper-middle-class people in 70s San Francisco trying to be groovy and embrace the the trends of the day, but also being quite uptight and caring about very, very superficial things and how the sort of the nuclear family falls apart and everyone drops out and shacks up, but also they're sort of anxious about having the right kind of stereo. But it's... um, Yeah, it's very funny, like sort of yes. perfect, poetic, comic yes. vignettes. And what's amazing is when you live long enough, those those things that, as you read them first, seem urgently contemporary, 
the writer is trying to encompass a new social phenomenon, a new crowd. What are they like? What do they sound like? And then they slip away and they become history. I was just thinking about those 1960s sort of Hamptons communities, if they are in the Hamptons. I'm not even sure my American job is not very good, but the John Updike thing. That's a piece of history now. That's so gone. That's so not, I, I think, what America thinks now or how it feels. It, Yeah, it's as vanished as Elizabeth Bowen's London, I think. Do you think that anyone is writing or is about to write about these times that we're in? Are there any books you've read that are vaguely contemporary that you feel have captured that? I, I mean, I'm sure there, I'm sure there are. I, I mean, I, I have a feeling that there's a bit of a collapse of confidence about realism and comedy, the co- you know, the social, the human comedy embodied in the particular, the day-to-day. For every good reason, we're really conscious of everything global and of a global history and of the the burdened responsibility of the present in all sorts of ways to do with both climate change but also politics and colonialism and history and class and race and and there's probably an unease actually I, and I say that really as you know obviously that's something I feel about taking as one's material sort of too joyously you know one's own milieu one's own place and time and and just that so I wonder if there's a bit of a crisis of realism going on. I mean, I, I'm not. A, I haven't actually read the. Oh, what's his name? You know, I've just Francis? lost it. Yes, him. I who I who I've only, I've read a couple of them, and you know, mixed feelings about them. But he's doing that, isn't he? He's trying to capture, absolutely trying to capture. And maybe Americans are doing it more than the British. That's a, I haven't mm. ever thought that thought before. But it does seem as if a lot of novels being published here tend towards the slightly magic realism or historical. Mm. Hilary Mantel went historical, although some of her early books, not so early books, wonderful Beyond Black and then her her marvellous memoir, obviously set in the past to some extent, but that she was a capturer of the now and then she sort of decided that I suppose her best way of capturing the now was not to write about the now, but to, to write about then. Gwendolyn Riley, that they're sharp, oh. cruel books, but wonderfully, wonderful in their sharpness of perception. And they're, maybe they're sort of about yesterday, because they do tend to, well, the one I've just read, the, the latest one, whose name I've momentarily lost but um about her parents uh, about the uh, it's about the narrator's parents of course not Gwendolyn Riley's parents though one, one's lazily doing a bit of elision there but so I suppose in one sense it's about 10 years ago 20 years ago but they're also about the now and um Claire Louise Bennett that's a kind of presentness she's trying to capture a presentness and a yesterdayness well i suppose i was thinking about how maybe now more than ever we are more in touch with the past and the future than we've ever been and the the lines are so blurred and i think in other other forms of art we can if we want to listen to music made in the 50s or watch mm. a film made in the mm. 70s you know we can mm. do that now we can sort of bring that to yeah. us in, in five minutes but in yeah. the 50s or the 70s that wasn't possible and that yeah. and but then the way we and also you know we are formed by 
by people and the generations coming before and afterwards and those ideas. A strange present which is very suffused by the recent past, at least. Although I can remember, you know, my grandparents married in 1926 and they bought a house and they bought all the furniture in the house and they still had that furniture in the house which presumably had been put there in, in the early 20s or the 10s they still had that when I was a little girl in the 60s so there were other forms of continuity which we had before we could call up and stream you know any old film anytime or any old music anytime we could we did play the records of the past. I grew up listening to jazz and a lot of it actually in the 60s when I was a child was from the 20s and the 30s because that's what my dad loved best. So the era you're really talking about when one was much more marooned in the present, I don't I don't know when that is, but it, it is. It is. You are right. You're right about a kind of ever-increasing coexistence with past moments. And I suppose the very first part of the 20th century, you didn't throw things away. You were talking about owning many books, that they were all there, where you could see them. You'd keep, you know, your furniture, because that was sort of valuable, and it was was what you had. So I suppose perhaps it's what we have now is the strange new and more and too much in the sort of... Yeah, new and more and too much. And I and I feel maybe that actually that counteracts the availability of the past. There's almost too much of the past. Mm. So 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 I I think one had a sharp sense of the past in the sixties. And another way one had it was through the children's books because I read E Nesbit as if it was contemporary. I've always thought that maybe in children's books there was a latitude because children were just less conscious of history. So therefore, I read them and I felt as if families with cooks and housemaids lived next door to me. They, it was natural as breathing because I'd read lots of Ines Bit books and other books that had that in. And I learned their mores and their patterns of speech were as familiar to me as what I heard in the playground or all, all, all but. And I used to think that children simply would always have this almost 50-year kind of margin, whereas adults would be aware of something feeling quite old, even after 20 years or 30 years. But I don't I don't know how children now... It'd be interesting, wouldn't it? Mm. How are children now reading Tom's Midnight Garden, which was actually yes. written in the 50s? Are they reading it as if it was contemporary? Or do they think, well, why isn't he playing on his Xbox? Or how funny that he's been sent away into quarantine because his brother's got measles. I don't know. Actually, maybe that part is quite current now. Yes, yes, that's true. That's true. That's true. And of course, Tom's Midnight Garden, which we haven't mentioned yet, which was one of these sort of most important books of my childhood, and which is the other kind of book, not the thin kind that you project richness into, but the kind that feeds you with its own richness. A marvellous book that reads as well now as it did then, differently, but as well. Um, That is all about the present and the past and the closeness of the past and the lostness of it. You you know it? Do you know it, I do. It's been a long, long time. Is it Michelle Magorian? No, uh, Philippa Pierce. Philippa Pierce. Philippa Pierce, 1950s. And it's a little boy who is sent to stay with his aunt and uncle in a big house. 
and um, there's a rather, there's no garden, there's a rather miserable yard with dustbins in and there are other flats in the house and a grumpy old lady on the top who owns it. And the clock strikes 13 at midnight. He goes downstairs, he opens the back door, which should open into the yard and it's a marvellous garden. And he comes night after night after midnight and he meets a girl there, a girl called Hattie. And they are close and um, the garden is wonderful. They have adventures. But Hattie sort of gradually seems to be older each time. And you gradually work out and that that she is the grumpy old lady at the top of the house. And it's all 100 years ago. It's um, It's the most beautiful book about time travelling and like all good books about time travelling it isn't about a silly trick of magic it's actually about awareness of the past and the past going on into the present all that we've been talking about gosh I just I brought it all back and I had such a melancholy pang and the way yeah. that sometimes I struggle to remember the book and then you sort of you had that feeling and again that's time travel as well yeah. Yeah, I think that's time travel. The, You're the right. clarity and sharpness of that, the strong emotion a book can mm. evoke. And sometimes I think you do go back and it's not the same, but often it's quite terrifyingly yeah. the same. Yeah, yeah. Secret Garden is was fascinating. I reread that not long ago. Um, I mean, that also bears up marvellously. There are bits, elements of Victorian sentimentality. There are elements of wince-making sort of, class with the servants but oh my goodness the core of the story is so frighteningly sturdy I, I, I don't know if you remember that at the opening page it literally sort of says Mary was a spoilt little brat who her parents didn't love very much and then they one day they all died of cholera and the small child was found alone but she was whiny and just I just thought oh it's so wonderfully abrasive although I said I loved realism in children's books I sometimes found that fine now children's books can be very bland <laughs> and I just I just thought this mean tough terrifying opening that I can remember reading as a child thinking oh my god so that could happen and uh, I think toughness is also good in children's books I remember feeling thrilled and affronted that we are going to tell you the story about this girl who is kind of a nightmare. She was the yes. first unlikable heroine I'm yes. air yes. quotes, that I yes. Yes. ever encountered. And I think yes. now I'm interested in the, the conversation about it, especially in sort of, um, I think, contemporary writing and books that women are writing about women and broadly, largely for other women. And books I love where there are heroines that are sort of, I think it's people understanding the difference between unlikable and unpleasant mm. and mm. I do think and I don't think it's mm. a very fashionable thought that you want to spend the time with someone they can be flawed and they can mm. be rude but there's got to be something about them that mm. will engage you to want to be with them but if they are just yes. straight up unlikable you yes. sort of think of I just read a let's say what was this book that's it's coming out and it's it's very like arch and clever and you know brilliantly written and very very funny but the sort of the ending of it I just felt so flat because I didn't have any feeling of the ending could have been deeply satisfying it could have been deeply frustrating but mm. I would have loved to have been frustrated by it instead I just felt a big shrug like these people have not moved you didn't at all. care about them no 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 and that's that's a big problem yes I, I agree with you exactly in that discrimination 
you 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 really don't want to spend the whole book with some sickly simpering good person or utterly likable but I'm trying to think whether they're exceptional I mean maybe Elizabeth Bennet is really very likable but of course she makes some terrible mistakes well it's interesting that uh, mentioning um Secret Garden in Francis Oxenbennett because I I loved Sarah in A Little Princess and yes. I know I know she's almost you know she's quite hard to bear yes. and I've not read that book in a long time but I do remember her very so and again it's possibly sort of um you know a little bit more limited than um Phyllis than, and yeah. her understanding of sort of social issues um and free love but when she talks to Becky having had the great reversal of fortunes I think maybe no maybe it's before that has happened to me both in the attic and she sort of says to Becky you know but but we're just the same it doesn't matter that I'm in mm. this situation you're in that situation we are both human people and it was done in such a simple way yeah. and I remember you know, reading the book and it was thinking about Miss Minchin and her awful, awful snobbery and thinking, oh, that's really important, actually. That's mm. something that... It's not that I thought that we weren't all the same, but, you know, just having it called mm. to my attention mm. when I was a child. And you know what, what I think you were doing, which, which is really precious? I think you were yielding yourself to the book and going back inside a different mindset and that is what one does when one reads books of the past and you were actually I mean it is possible to read all kinds of Victorian sentimentality as we would say it and to go back to that image of the two readers the one who is immersed and the one who is critically thinking to have both of those things going on at once and be a grown-up who thinks god that that's what the Victorians were like and that's sort of not really quite all right it's and to be wholly inside it and that's just a wonderful contradiction a paradox of reading which is a which is a great imaginative and intellectual movement actually to be at once wholly immersed and in sympathy with and to be seeing round it and through it and I, I don't think there's a contradiction in there or it's a really creative contradiction. And it's really good for not being marooned in our present in a sort of smug way and thinking that the past was so stupid or so wicked or, or, or for that matter, so much to be preferred. None of those things. And yeah, it's very, it's, it's why reading and reading the store of books and dramas and poetry that we have from our past is so much more, so much more than entertainment while being joy, joyously entertaining um, and pleasurable. But it makes us bigger and makes our culture not just shallowly now, but it gives it all its dimension and, and takes us out of our modernity and makes us look look at that and, and see there are other ways of being and other ways of thinking. It really does. And also, it does make us realise that we are all the same. There are so many things, I think, so many more than we realise that about how humans are that is mm. unchanging, mm. you know, in our sort of our hopes and our pettiness and our the things yeah, we feel that we should care about absolutely. and things we really do but care about. But I think I, I'm probably less of a universalist than you. I, I'm not sure I am a great essentialist. I tend to think, uh, you know, almost anthropologically, when you're reading George Eliot, let's say, let alone somebody really quite alien like Charlotte Young or whoever, first of all, you are recognising and absolutely feeling a kinship 
with the humanness and the longings and the struggles. But oh, the struggles are so different at the same time. They are so different and they are made up of different wants and different ideals and different satisfactions. And we couldn't read the story of Dorothea Brooke as a, as a modern woman without go you know in Middlemarch without going back into a Victorian woman's horizons which were not the same as us now and if you went in just as a just as a crusading modern mm. you could only find fault and there was a sort of craze of that in criticism wasn't there in the mm. 80s or 90s for, for good reason it probably needed to be done where we went back inside Henry James and George Eliot and found them wanting found that they'd written really unpleasant things about immigrants to New York in James's case and so on and so forth. But th I think that was the less big impulse in reading, that sort of ticking off the past for not being quite good enough. Mm. It, it's a, it's, it, it's a, not thinking for a moment we should not register when James does talk about, you know, teeming masses in New York and what's going to become of the, the, the America I knew. We, we we register it, we see it for what it is. And I, I mean, I think I think you're right in that it's very different for you know for women and their sort of horizons yeah. and what yeah. a woman could hope and imagine for herself in in a Victorian book is hugely, impossibly, um, you know, entirely, entirely different from. And we, while what we we're reading, now. can want it for her. Mm. We can want it for her. We cannot think, gosh, Dorothea, I wish you would not fall in love and get married and restrict yourself to your family. But I wish you would become a doctor or go and found a university. We, we, we're not at all interested in... It's, I mean, even more so in Henry James, when all those things were more possible. How do we care for Kay Croy? Equivocally, of course. But why do we think she needs to be rich? Mm. Why don't we think, go and get a job, have a career, Kate. And it flits across our mind. We have more than flits across our mind. We have a context in which... There, there couldn't be a Kate Croy now. We would, yeah. she would be loathsome. She'd be a Kardashian or something, mm. you know, someone who just wants to marry a rich man. <laughs> and what? It would be boring. It's no longer interesting, but it's not boring. Do you in not at least want a signature fragrance, Kate? This is such a difficult conversation we're having. It's really mm. complex about imagination and historical change and how one can both critique and and yet accept somewhere f accept and forgive is that a word or is that sound too condescending but you know sort of inhabit the perspectives of the past and and not be smugly checking them or ticking them off all the time just thought i'll admit to being a sentimentalist as well as a universalist about sort of Women in Possibility and, you know, books sort of a, written 100 years ago, 200 years ago more. What I definitely, definitely struggled with so much when I was younger and still now I intellectually understand, but perhaps in my heart, not so much. You know, marrying for love. Mm. And, the, and people do in old books, of course they do. People fall in love and that's, that's what you want and that's what makes the story interesting. But the idea that even that wasn't a given and of course now you know romantic love and happiness and finding it there isn't a given either but that that should be hmm. that was the one thing that women were still 
permitted to dream about but also often had to sacrifice mm. I think that was mm. quite the books that mm. tackled that in quite an adult way I think mm. I think they shocked me more than um the sexy books when I was growing mm. up the Brontes are fascinating for that aren't they mm. and you have Jane Eyre and being a sentimentalist by the way I mean anyone who doesn't cry reading Jane Eyre what are they what kind of reader do they think they are you know because you do and then reading Villette have you read Villette yes a long time ago, but yes. Which is just like rewriting the same story. Poor, plain governess, cleverer than most people around her. But instead of finding Mr Rochester, she doesn't. It's just lonely, and she nearly goes mad. And she does love a man, and he doesn't love her. I mean, it, there is a sort of peculiar tact on happy ending, but it, it's, she does it actually so gracefully that you know... It's half a dream and then it isn't a happy ending after all anyway. Um, so that's marvellous. That's a marvellous pairing of books. And it wasn't because Charlotte Bronte sat... I mean, she, she knew exactly what she was doing, but the other books are so lumpy and awkward and odd and ideological and they're mostly they're failures, her other books, I think. They don't work at all. I must read Villette again because I think I was too young when I read it. Yeah, I just remember it's a very thinking, odd book. This None of this is... Fun. This no, is just too it isn't fun. Desperate. It's too desperate. And I just did not yeah. know enough about the world yeah. when I first tried. Yeah, yeah. No, it's not for teenagers. Whereas every teenager should read Jane Eyre, most definitely. So, the, so that's a brilliant moment of of recognition. I suppose in persuasion too. Although you know, Jane Austen's needle is so sublimely set to cheerful. You know that the chances of Captain Wentworth coming back are quite remote and that probably she would go on being everybody's maiden aunt and so on. And that if she does marry him anyway, she may die in childbirth, like all Jane Austen's sister-in-laws seem to do eventually after their ninth or tenth child. And while you do get, you know, the, the hope and joy and satisfaction of, you know, some of the great love stories in Austen, those books are populated with tiny, quiet tragedies. Yeah, the women and terrible marriages. And they're full of terrible marriages. And, yeah. you know, I always sort of think of Miss Bates. Has anyone ever yeah. written the Miss Bates book about that life and how... Mm. And maybe mm. it's actually really judgmental and awful of me to say that's kind of a, a lesser life, but this sort of... To, no, but it someone is. Who is. Someone yes. who is pitted. And it's not that yeah. she isn't... It's not the being a, a spinster in the technical term. It's the, it's the yeah. pity. But you don't feel as though yeah. she's... The Miss pity Bates and the poverty, by the way, because mm, had yes. she been wealthy, mm. it would she'd be somebody be... quite different. Yes. yes. <laughs> the pity and the genteel mm. poverty. Oh, Tessa, I just could go on with this conversation for about a year, but I'm aware that, you know, you've got things to do and time is limited. So I'd love to finish by asking about any books that you are excited to read, anything that sort of, you know, if you've got a, a pile or a, a bookshelf or... I, I've got a couple of books I've... I've just been rereading. I do, I actually do so much rereading these days. I've I've been rereading A Wreath of Roses by Elizabeth Taylor, that, which is brilliantly about those things we were just talking about. It has a spinster in it who's an artist and a painter, and that's marvelous. Yeah. Anyway, so that was good. I have beside my bed um, T. J. Clarke's new book on Cezanne, which my brother, who's an art historian, sent me for Christmas. And he said it's very T.J. Clarkey, so it has its moments, but it's 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 really good. So I'm really looking forward to that. That sounds like a 
a great pairing. Thank you so much for your time and this has brought me so much joy. And that was lovely, so many Daisy. things I'm going to read. I know. That's lovely. Thank you so much. Huge thanks to Tessa. Free Love is out in paperback on Thursday the 9th of February, published by Vintage. It's the story of major social change and how it affects a family. It's so vivid, so visceral, and so generous in its lack of judgment. And I'm going to say it, so sexy. Your book is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. You can find us and follow us on social media at YBooked. Huge thanks to everyone who has given us a five-star review. And if you haven't done it yet and you've been listening for a little while, we'd really appreciate it. It's the best way to help people to find the podcast and their new favourite book. We'll be back next week. For now, I leave you with this from Jean Rees. Not that she objected to solitude, quite the contrary. She had books, thank heaven. Quantities of books. All sorts of books. See you next time. Cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.